New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Today I'm hosting Father Matthew Fox. He's the author of many, many books, and his newest book is called A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. Welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you, Justine. Good to be here. Great to have you. So, first of all, if you can let people know who may not have known who Thomas Merton was, who was he? Thomas Merton was a Catholic monk who belonged to the Trappist order, which is a very strict order. And uh, he was a writer and a famous writer, a very successful writer, actually. But he he wrote about the deep experience of contemplation and also action. In the last 10 years of his life, he died in 1968. Uh, He especially stood up about issues like the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement. He was an ally to Dr. King. They were buddies. He broke real ground in terms of interfaith or deep ecumenism. He was uh, respected very much uh, by his friend the Dalai Lama and by Thich Nhat Hanh, who nominated him for a uh, Nobel Peace Prize. So he brought together contemplation and action, uh, the mystical and the prophetic, in a very profound way. And he could write so well that um, his, his poetry and his books reached many, many people of faith and people who would not call themselves uh, believers. He reached a very broad audience and in a very deep way. So when you say the mystical and the prophetic, what do you mean by that? Well, mysticism is our yes to life. The mystic is the lover in all of us. And the prophet is the no to injustice, that which um, interferes with life. And uh, I'd say it's not just religion that is fair to the mystic, but also uh, our culture. The late um, psychologist Ted Rosak used to say that the Enlightenment held mysticism up for ridicule as the worst defense against science and reason. So the mystic in us taps into our right brain, the right hemisphere of the brain, the intuitive brain. And that is not always appreciated in our culture, in our educational system, and so forth. So there is an awakening to mysticism happening around the world today. And this is why we revere people like the Dalai Lama and Thomas Merton, because they've done their inner work to bring alive our powers of intuition, contemplation. Would you say that mysticism has something to do with eros, I mean, that, that love principle that's, I mean, beyond sexuality, but that deep celebration of life. Definitely. And Merton uh, talks beautifully about that, if you'd like me to oh, share a passage uh, that is, uh, is very special. He was living in a um, hermitage on the monastery grounds, and it was a very simple place. But he, he writes uh, about his experience at night. He says, I live in the woods out of necessity. I get out of bed in the middle of the night because it is imperative that I hear the silence of the night, alone, and with my face on the floor, say psalms, alone, in the silence of the night. 
The silence of the forest is my bride, and the sweet dark warmth of the whole world is my love. And out of the heart of that dark warmth comes a secret that is heard only in silence. But it is a root of all the secrets that are whispered by all the lovers in their beds all over the world. It's a very erotic passage. Yes. But it's, it's about the cosmic eros, about the, how the night itself is blessing us and bestowing its warmth upon us. And, um, and yet he marries it with human love as well. So he does a marvelous job of um, reconnecting psyche and cosmos. And this is something the humans are always striving to do. I mean, our great um, ritual places, Stonehenge, for example, I always ask, what got people out of their couches, away from watching television, to drag these huge rocks, <laughs> thousands of tons heavy, before the wheel was invented? You know, what got them dragging these things? It was the solstice and in the equinox, it was connecting the human psyche to the cosmos. And, of course, Newgrange in, in Ireland is a, is a similar practice, you see. Uh, it was around the, the mystery of the winter solstice that the Newgrange monument was constructed even before, older than the pyramids of Egypt. I remember seeing Newgrange for the first time just from afar, and I thought, oh, that must be a museum that they've made around the, this monument. <laughs> And it turned out to be the monument. I mean, yes. it's, it's it quite... It looks so new and bright and shiny. Of course, it was buried under earth for many centuries. But it is amazing, isn't it? Yes. Just like you say, that's a funny story. But yes. I recognize it because it is. it looks like it was built yesterday. <laughs> Precisely, precisely. And uh, I'm just, I'm thinking also when you talk about Merton getting up in that early morning, I remember Michael, my partner who has now passed on, I remember him saying many times, oh, it comforts me to know that there are monks all over the world that are getting up at three and four o'clock in the morning and they're praying. Mm. There was something deeply comforting mm. to him mm. about that idea mm. of prayer in the silence of mm. the night mm. or the early morning. Mm -hmm. Well, he was certainly tapping into the very energy that you find in this passage we just shared from Merton, you know, that uh, the, the night has its mystical invitation uh, to to all of us, really. And um, it's touching that Michael tapped into that. I think Merton would, would approve. There was something Merton also spoke to with some degree of a critique of the American doism that we're always doing, doing, doing. And he had an objection to that, that it doesn't help us tap into our creative energies. What would you say about that? Well, exactly. He felt that it's easy for us to be overly oriented to results and that, in fact, many of the things in life that are most precious and important are not about doing but about being and that we have to take time out for being and not just doing and accomplishing things. And as he says, time for uselessness and not just usefulness. That was a big issue for him. And he, he, he commented on Ionusco's play, The Rhinoceros, and he talks about rhinoceritis is a disease of always having to fill your time with busyness. We're always being busy. And it'll, you know, it's, it's not good for the soul. It's not good for the culture either. Uh, 
So he was very um, critical of that. He was critical of a lot of things. He was critical of religion that marries itself to politics, a fundamentalist religion. He says this is the greatest um, orgy of idolatry the world has ever seen. And he says this is uh, when we worship God as the status quo, he says. And uh, he's very keen on looking with a critical eye to uh, the bubbles that we sometimes live in uh, in our culture. And then we don't even question, we just... Uh... Exactly. And of course, it's one reason that he was out front in the issue of um, the environment and ecology. He responded to Rachel Carson's Silent Spring immediately in a positive way. She had been fired by her science faculty for that book. They accused her of being a hysterical woman in love with trees and bunnies. But he responded and said, because of your research, we're ceasing to use DDT on our monastic farm now. And I really thank you for that, he said. He was also critical of his own monastery system, his own abbey, as they got away from using hand tools and horses or mules or whatever they were using <laughs> and starting to mechanize. Exactly. When he joined in 1940, it was like a peasant French farm. And he was raised in France, so he knew peasant French farms. And he loved that. But later, the abbot got much more factory-oriented and more interested in, in uh, making money on the grounds. And so they brought in the machinery. And he, he hated the noise that the machines made to begin with. But also, he didn't like the efficiency of it. That, again, he felt they were introducing tactics to just produce and make money and that you were losing the contemplative dimension of the work itself, that the process of work itself should be joyful and beautiful. And this is lost when you're, you're on timetables now to get a certain amount of wheat harvested by a certain date every year and so forth. So yeah, he resisted that. Right. And I'm thinking also that in this contemplative part of him, he also not being busy, but he was very prolific in his writings, in his poetry, in his whole creative life. In his correspondence was huge. He corresponded with people all over the world, yes, including yourself. Well, that's true. And he did it before emails and, in fact, before <laughs> computers. You can see his little type, hand pokey typewriter in the, in the museum at the Thomas Merton Center. Yes, he was very prolific and, and very generous very generous with his time. I think he had an intuition that he wasn't going to live a real long life. And so he, he gave back in a very right. generous way. And he, in fact, did die at 53. He did die at 53. And I think, uh, I'm sure now, the evidence shows that he was assassinated. Um, it was 1968, and his friend Dr. King had already been murdered, and Robert Kennedy had been murdered. And he was an early critic of the Vietnam War. Yes. And that was problematic in 1968. That's right. He gave a talk in Bangkok on Karl Marx and monasticism, and three hours later he was dead. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've spoken to CIA agents who were there at the time, and the third one I met said, yes, we killed him. Mm -hmm. So I think he, it can be said he died a martyr for peace. And Thich Nhat Hanh, who was a friend of his, nominated him for a Nobel Peace Prize. Even the Pope, who spoke to the Congress of the U.S., mentioned Merton. Yeah, Pope Francis uh, invoked Merton last year when he spoke to Congress. He said, Merton was above all a man of prayer, a thinker who challenged the certitudes of his time, 
and opened new horizons for souls and for the church. He was also a man of dialogue, a promoter of peace between peoples and religions. So that's a far cry from what the <laughs> church has said of your work and had Merton lived probably would have said of his work <laughs> at the time. Well, I, I take this up in the book where I go through the seven heresies I was accused of, including that I call God mother and that I'm a feminist theologian and so forth. And I show that Merton, what can I say? He was an ally of mine. He would have, he would have been accused of the same mistaken naming of, of heresies. Uh, it's, it just shows the shadow that took over the papacy for 34 years under right. the previous two popes. Yes. The present pope is, is different. And I, I'd like to say, by the way, that his good encyclical on the environment called Laudate Si was actually written by one of my students, a graduate of my master's program, Father Sean McDonough, an Irish missionary priest in the Philippines. And this is the present pope. 80% of that of that encyclical. Yes, so I've lived long enough to hear two popes tell me my work was, quote, dangerous and deviant, and a third pope to uh, plagiarize my work. So, oh, yay. So now I can die in peace. It's been fun. This is wonderful. <laughs> this is wonderful. Ride. Well, I highly recommend uh, anyone reading this book in a way that really answers the question, if any of us have the question about any issue we might say of importance we might say, what would Merton do or what would Merton think? And I think that you have really, through his journals, his letters, personal letters to you, what he sent to you, what what he sent to others, that you've really looked deeply into that. And this, I want to highly recommend this, this uh, piece of work that you've put together. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And Thomas Merton is definitely worth people's time. Absolutely. Man of substance. Exactly. I want to remind our listeners that I've been here with Father Matthew Fox. He's the author of A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journal. And if you want to know more about Matthew Fox's work, you can go to his website, matthewfox.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe and invite you, please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.